In Hebrews chapter 10, our passage for this little series that we're teaching on, Hebrews 10 and verse 38. You're probably well familiar with the scripture. You should be. It says, for the just shall live by faith. Doesn't your Bible say that? The just shall live by faith, and then we're warned, but if any man draws back, God said, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. And we're not of those that draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. That's how important faith is. That one simple word, faith being a noun, believe being a verb, talking about the same thing. It's so important because God outlines very clearly, very specifically in Scripture, this is how we as Christians live. Now, not all Christians are taught to live this way, but it doesn't matter. Like Isaiah 8, 20 says, yet they speak not according to this word, they have no, no light. So we, we pray that I pray that it is light. You'll have to determine that, but it says that this is how we live. We're supposed to live by faith. Now, I began this series with principles, principles that bring faith, how faith comes. It, you know, it comes by hearing, and when it comes, it'll, it'll come to your heart, and then you confess it, you act like it's true, then you must endure. You must hold fast to it. It's a powerful thing in your life because Jesus said in, in Mark, remember in Mark 9, 23, all things are possible to those who believe. I mean, you think about it. Think of all the things that we just wish about and covet and long for. And Jesus made it this simple. He said, what things ever you desire when you pray in Mark, Mark 11, believe you receive it. He said in Mark 10, that with God, all things are possible. And then he said in Mark 9, that if you can believe, if, if you can believe, all things are possible to you, for you. It's there. And when people say, well, why doesn't God do something? It looks like to me he already has. And the question is not when will God do something, is when will you believe? Because what he said to us very specifically is how to live, what we can expect if we live this, this way, and so forth. But then we talk about our failures so much. Because when you're walking by faith, you're walking on a pretty narrow edge. It's not... God and anything else is simply God. I mean, when the Bible teaches us to lean not to our own understanding, that's what governs and guides most people is how they see things, how they understand it. The educational system, common sense, back and forth between each other growing up, we learn to figure things out and that's what we believe. Then we come to the Lord and he, and he tells us a whole lot of the way we function isn't scriptural. I mean, it's acceptable amongst ourselves because everybody's the same. But with God, everything changes. Everything changes. You can't live that way and live the way God wants you to live. Walking in newness of life means you're walking in newness of life. And we're going to live on his terms. And when things don't work for us, it's tragic. I mean, we make the good confessions, we say what God says, we give, or we do a lot of things that God requires us to do, and yet, all this that you're hearing 
for whatever reasons we could give doesn't work for everybody. Somebody died. Somebody's divorce went through. Or somebody's job was lost. Or somebody didn't get whatever it was they were passionately pleading with God for. Oh, they just stayed before the Lord. Just hammered at the throne and didn't get it. And we can't understand why. And sometimes it is hard to figure out. And a lot of times, I don't know myself. But I know the Bible does make clear some reasons why faith doesn't work or things that stop your faith from working. Even though you're making good confessions, even though you're acting out your faith, and even though you're doing all the principles of faith, there are things that cause that faith not to work. The first one we mentioned last week was sin. I mentioned three verses, Isaiah 59 and verse 2. God says, but your iniquities and your sins have separated from your God that he will not hear. You think about that. Your sins, your iniquities, our iniquities. A word which among the many words for sin in the Bible, transgression, sin, and, and so forth. A word which has largely to do, I think, with selfishness. Self-serving life. He said, it's your iniquities and, and your sins that have separated between you and God that he won't hear you. I don't care how you act. I don't care what you're confessing, what church you go to, and what book you're reading. It won't work if God isn't hearing you. And we saw, we read in Psalm 66 and verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord won't hear me. There's not a soul in this room, if you're a Christian, and you sin that you don't know it. Something inside of you that is of God alerts you to the fact that what you just did was wrong. We call it conscience, a renewed conscience. If your conscience isn't renewed, it makes excuses and says, well, after all, I mean, who's perfect? And talks like that, logic and reason, death dealers. But with God, the Holy Spirit simply says that was wrong. You shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have watched that, warned that, gone there, eating another one of them or whatever it is that God deals with you about. Because remember, this is a personal matter, a personal relationship with God. My faith isn't a group thing. It's a me and God thing or God and me thing. And he said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And then in John chapter 9, verse 31, in the New Testament, a man said, now we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. So we're given a way to live as Christians. I hope all you young folks are listening. Because the way you're given to live is not just an ordinary way that church folks try to do. It's a specific way that works. It has the endorsement of God on it. It's not an easy way. It's an offensive way to non-Christians. You seem to be such a fool to live this way or to even think like that or even to go to a place like that to worship. Well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You're saying you're healed, but you, you, it's obviously that you can't, <coughs> that you don't look. And, and, and you try to tell them, I didn't say I was healed because I sound healed. I certainly didn't say I was healed because I look healed. I say I'm healed because God says I am. See, I'm basing what I believe on what he said, not what I feel, not what you think. I'm not trying to please you or appease you. I'm trying to serve the Lord. 
on his terms, which is what Christianity is. Living his way, being hated, being despised, that's coming. That's John 7, John 15. You'll be hated by the whole world. But know this, that before they hated you, they hated me. Christ having a free reign in your life and him living, him allowed to be Lord in your life by your consent set you up for the same persecution that came to him. Called the fellowship of his sufferings in the New Testament. That's another sermon. But, but anyway, the secondly thing was that this faith stopper of unforgiveness. You have ill will against somebody or resentment. That's why you talk about them so much. That's why you talk down about certain people so much. Because there's a bitterness of some experience in your past. Somebody did you wrong. A husband left you. A wife left you. A child did this. Or they embarrassed you. Or something. And you couldn't forgive. A friend of mine years ago said he couldn't forgive the Red Cross because if, it, if they had given blood to his dad, he would have lived. I don't know any details about it. just what he said. And he had this feeling about them. What if I told you there are people who have resentment against God? God could have stopped that. God could have kept that from happening. He certainly could have. Like I've said before, the phone call one night from a young lady who's about to be married husband was killed in a car wreck, crying, as I would understand. I feel so sorry for her. Why would God do this? And I said, God didn't do this. I said, now you've been to church just enough that you've heard this. The thief cometh to kill and to steal and destroy. God is not your problem. The devil is your problem. He's trying to blame God for it. But the problem is the one who does the dealing of death. And he has a hold. He has a way. He gets in. See, you've got to, you've got to protect yourself. You've got, to, you've got to keep your life clean. If I've learned one thing in the last 40-some plus years, I've learned this, that you, you better be wary when you walk through this life and not give place to the devil. That's Ephesians 4.27. Don't give place to the devil, which means you can't. Which means Christians do. If it couldn't happen, we wouldn't be warned about it. And yet it's largely ignored. Oh, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I do this. I do this. I sing and I, 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 I oh, he couldn't get into me. And he does. Just like sin or unforgiveness. Your feelings about somebody else. This is resentment. Jesus said in Matthew 6 and verses 13 through 15, the Sermon on the Mount. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And he goes on to talk about if you don't forgive, your father won't forgive you. Oh, how could that be? Well, remember Mark, how many of you remember Mark eleven twenty four? We quote it every now and then. What things soever you desire, when you pray, you believe, you got it, you'll get it. The very next two verses says, and when you stand praying, forgive. The very first thing he says on such a powerful thing that God has given you in your life, what thing soever you desire, remember this. It works, but it doesn't work if you've got resentment in your heart because when you stand praying, forgive. For if you will not forgive men their trespasses against you, neither will your father forgive you. That puts you in a pretty bad place. Or in Matthew 18. 
You know, remember Matthew 18, a certain man was forgiven a great debt, but he wouldn't forgive his fellow man a little debt. And when the man who forgave the great debt heard about it, he called him back in. He said, you wicked servant, you wicked person. You were forgiven all that trash in your life, all your drug dealing, your running around, your drinking, carousing, all the evil you did. You'd, and God forgave you every bit of that, and you cannot forgive somebody across the street because they kicked your dog and sued you because they got dog bit. And you can't forgive them. You just hold that against him, and you're so mad. You know what he said to the guy? He said, put him back in prison until he pays his debt, and he couldn't. He said he put him back in there until the whole debt was paid. Turn to Matthew 18. Look at verse 35. How many people believe that? How many people really believe that? So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts do not forgive every man his brother, forgive me for whatever you did from your heart. What if you just mouth the words, but you didn't mean it? Well, you're not forgiven. That's what he said, didn't he? I didn't write this. How many of you know I didn't write it? So Jesus said, if you will not forgive from your heart, after all you've been forgiven of that God was aware of, if you cannot forgive your brother, then you're not forgiven. All this goes back. I think that verse would probably set you still in a chair for quite a while and make you think real strong about how you view other people in your past or your present who are not nice and rude and, and who upset you. You better think of that because you really don't have a choice. You've got to forgive. Paul wrote that we have got to forgive others even as God in Christ, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. That's why God forgave us, because what Jesus did for us. Now, tonight, thirdly, going on, a third reason that faith is stopped is because men are uncertain as to the will of God. Now, we taught on that earlier in the principles, but how many people do you suppose base their faith on what somebody taught them? What's wrong with that? Well, I mean, there may not be a lot of good about that. It may be good. depends on what you're taught. How do you know in this room tonight of what I'm teaching you is scripture? There's got to be a way to know. There's got to be a way for you to know if what you're hearing is scriptural or of God. You've got to be able to know that. Because if you're not really interested in proving all that stuff, but you just... Well, the figure that is speaking is such a powerful presence, had such a powerful testimony, and wow, that uh, I figured like this, if I use my faith the way he used his and I act the way he acted and talk the way he talked, it'll work for me too. But that's not the basis for faith. This is the glowing testimony of being raised from the dead or how God did some mighty work in your life. It's something that thrills all of us. We all like to hear that. I do. I love to hear a good testimony. But you've got to realize the person telling that testimony in their personal life had a relationship with God out of which the power of that testimony came. You're getting to hear the power of it. You can't base your faith on what they did or how they acted in a certain situation. The testimony years ago about the jet that crashed 
And as the jet was totally engulfed in flames, and a man walked down the aisle unburned and came out of the plane in the Canary Islands years ago. You say, well, if a plane ever crashes and I'm on, I'm just going to walk down the aisle and say the name of Jesus. Well, if you can think that clearly that fast in a time like that, praise the Lord. But you can't base your faith on somebody's testimony or even what somebody said. Turn to Acts 17, verse 11. There's a reason why God puts verses like this in the, in the Bible. Acts 17 and verse 11. Obviously, Paul was quite a theologian, quite a knowledgeable man of Scripture. Uh, he didn't have a Bible to carry around with which he could point to. You got to realize when Paul wrote what he wrote, most of it was memorized. It's committed to his memory. But that's what he lived for. He lived to know the Word. He wanted to be Word of God minded. He wanted the Word to be alive on the inside of him because that's the most unchanging thing there is, is the Word of God. It abides forever. And like the Lord, he said, oh, the Lord, I change not in Malachi 3. But in Acts 17, verse 11, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. Well, so did we. But that's not all. And searched the scriptures daily. Why? Now, what if the apostle Paul would say, why would you search what I'm saying, seeing that I'm an apostle and a theologian? Why, why would you have to search out what I'm, of course I'm right. I don't think I've ever been wrong. Now, there's some people that would be overwhelmed or maybe intimidated by that and say, well, I'm sorry, I have to question you. But Paul, the great theologian, said these people were more noble than those in Thessalonica. The word noble means noble-minded. They grasped the word with all readiness of mind. They came to hear it. They didn't wander into another routine night. They came to hear the word. And with all readiness of mind, they received the word. They heard what was said, maybe wrote it down or took it home with them. And they set it down before their study place or whatever they needed to do to verify whether or not, whether or not what they heard was right. What if somebody said to me, well, I heard what you said, but I'm going to go home and see if that's true or not. I'd say, praise the Lord. I don't want you to believe anything I say. Don't believe it because I said it. If it's not in the word, forget it. But if it's in the word, then it's between you and God, not you and me. Because they search the scriptures. I don't know if Christians do that today or not. We're very busy people. We got a lot of things on our mind, on our plate. We were busy. And searching the scripture just seems like, oh, no, I, he, I'm sure that's right. I mean, he's so sure when he said it, it sounded right. It must be right. But you can get in trouble doing that because you ever turn a radio on or a TV on and watch the newest sensation preacher? I have. I, I've seen them for a few seconds, for a few minutes. I've, I've watched some of them. And I didn't, I didn't last long because I'm so narrow-minded. I'm just making that up. But I hear what some of them say, and I think, you know, that's not entirely true. I heard a one well-known Baptist minister one night, and I'm only saying Baptist because he, he makes a big deal out of that. 
So this Baptist minister one night said, you know, nowhere in the Bible does it say that Christians have to repent to be saved. So, of course, my little flag flies up, and I thought, now, didn't Jesus say, except you repent, you shall perish? Well, that ought to work in there somewhere. But his saying was, you know, if you have to do anything to be saved, then you work at it. Uh, you're missing a whole boat, but I'm thinking, who am I to tell this guy that this guy could be my daddy? Mm, not quite. <laughs> but I don't listen. Me and you, I don't care who they are or what they say. Is it in the word? Anybody I have ever heard in my life, I thank God for the teachers I've had in my life. I thank God for the wisdom that has been given through these men in the word so that I can understand it. I do. I praise God for that. I don't just take it because they said it as being true. I got to find out for myself. I have a personal relationship with God. And what I believe must be based on what he has said to me. He used teachers to talk to me, but I've got to believe with my heart what he said. I've got to see what he says with my, the, the eyes of my heart. Remember Ephesians 1, the eyes of your heart? I've got to see it. I'm glad it worked for you. I'm glad you can walk the way you walk and all that faith stuff. I'm glad for you, but I don't know that I see that. But I do know that God is a great eye opener and that if I will search, I will find. But I'm not going to do it because you did it or Hamilton did it or anybody else did it. I'm going to do it because I am personally persuaded and convinced that God said that. And when I see that, I'll do it because he said it, not because you said it. You're welcome. Amen. So you've got to be convinced yourself. Isaiah said in Isaiah 34, he says, seek ye out the book of the law and read. Everybody's talking, everybody's prophesying, everybody's predicting, everybody's got a new slant. This is an end time. What does God say? I'm glad for all the I am, for all the excitement I've seen and known in my past, more yesterday than today for me, but I'm glad. But I know that people can follow wildfire instead of the word, because I grew up with a bunch of them that we can start going after this or that instead of the word of God. Somebody said, well, don't y'all believe in the gifts? I think, you know, I do. I've taught on it. I've taught two or three times on it. Well, I don't ever, hardly ever, ever see them operate. Well, then that's between God and you because I, you know, I've tried. I used to prophesy as a matter of course. You know, it's prayer meeting. Feeling pretty good, praying pretty long, strong. I think I'll let one go, and I did. Let two or three of them go. Prophesied one night to this young couple how God was pleased with their relationship, and they were fornicating. And I was just comforting them, and said, she said to him later, as she told me, see, it's okay. He said so. I thought, boy, you can't play games with spiritual things. I'll tell you this, if God stirs my heart to where I know it's God, I will. I remember the old days in Indianapolis, the seminar up there, some of you were there, up at the Adams Mark. They had the microphones hanging from the, in the aisle or the stands in the aisle. And you'd come up and prophesy. Man, I heard some good ones. I don't remember what any of them said. 
In other words, if it was a divine moment and the word of the Lord came to all of us, to this day, I, I wasn't affected by it. But don't get me wrong. I believe, I believe God speaks sometimes uh, even in the church. And one of the ways the church edifies itself is through these gifts. If somebody has a, a, a prophetic word, been stirring in them all day long, they go to church and they speak it and ministers to somebody in the other side of the room. Casper, Wyoming, 1978, Ramada Inn, early in the year. I just taught on my first message of faith. We were singing, getting ready to go, and I had my hands up. My eyes were shut, so I couldn't see what anybody else was doing and be distracted. So I had my eyes shut and had a word, which I figured, I assumed it was a word. It was the word firewood. I said, well, I'm not going to say that. There's no, I can't say, firewood! You know, and I said, firewood. And I told him, I said, I don't mean to apologize before I say this, but I, I, I feel like it, <laughs> the Lord just gave me a word. And it's the word firewood. And nobody moved. No, nobody stirred. Like, And I said, then I have another one. Now I just got another one. While I'm talking to you, I just got another one. I saw a man's leg, his left leg. I saw the middle of his thigh. It was something there on the, on the leg. And somebody broke down crying and said their leg was getting healed. That was a long time. That was back a few years ago. But see how that works? After the meeting was over, a guy came up to me and, old cowboy, wiping tears out of his eyes, said, you don't know how much I was blessed by what you said about firewood. I said, what? what please tell me what it was all that's about. But he wouldn't. He said, it's a long story, but it was an answer to a prayer I've had, a burden on my heart for years. Now, don't go out somewhere <laughs> and say, I got a word, firewood. Don't, because, see, you're only doing, you're violating what I just said earlier. You're saying it because I said it. But all these things happen because we walk with the Lord and he trains us. And he instills us on how to move with him. And let me tell you something. If God doesn't stir your heart to do these things, leave it alone. It's a spiritual thing. You can affect people's lives. But if he does give you a word, or well, he does tell you to prophesy according to the measure of your faith, then I suggest you do it. And it could have just been a word of encouragement. It just could have been a way that God, through some person not in the pulpit, just spoke a word of encouragement. We know each other. We know each other's lives. We know each other's children. And when somebody that we know like that speaks like that, we know they've been spending time with God. They're trying to listen to God. They're trying to hear from God. And they're taking a step of faith when they step out and speak. And so we have to respect that. We have to respect that. But back to the will of God. Remember, Paul said in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, prove all things, including what you're hearing, as well as whatever is Functioned by the gift. But prove all things and hold fast to what? Hold fast to that which is good. Next, another thing. Fourthly, and this one is probably more, oh, rejected by a lot of faith people than it should be, but a lot of people pray and are uncertain as to whether or not it worked. They pray, 
they, they pray a repeated prayer. They repeat the same prayer over and over again because they're not sure inwardly that what they are claiming or praying about, they're not exactly sure that it's going to work. And when you're not sure it's going to work, chances are you keep asking for the same thing. This is somewhat controversial, as I said to, uh, to some people, but would you look in uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7 back again in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 6 and verse 7. Jesus tells us here what we should not do. He said, but when you pray, use not what? Vain repeatings. Do not continue to repeat the same thing because that's vain. Vain means useless, of no significance, what vanity is. Meaningless, useless. As I understand it, Jesus is telling us that if when you pray, you keep repeating that same prayer over and over, and it's a prayer of petition, that is you're asking for something, you keep repeating it, you have yet to believe that it's going to work. Because you think by your much praying that if I keep saying it, if I keep praying about it, then perhaps it'll come to pass as though God could be coerced to do that for you. And it doesn't work like that. When you pray the prayer of faith, you need to pray really only once. If you know that God hears you, didn't he say this in 1 John 5? Take my word for it or go look for John 5, 14 and 15. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, then we know that we have the petitions that we have desired of him. Now, if you know you've got it, then you're no longer trying to get it because you know you've got it. Now, if I know I've got something, I usually start thanking God for it. Well, how can you thank God? You can't see it. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Faith is not a right now. Faith is a in a minute or tomorrow or next year. Faith is always future. Now, I'm believing that something that God has said is mine. I don't know when it'll happen, but I know it will happen. I believe I've, I've received it in Jesus' name. And that's, that's the way it should be. But this word vain repetition in the uh, uh, Greek dictionary says it's, it's much talk without content, repeating the same thing over and over again. My dad who was, and my brother who were Catholic did this. In the rosary, as a way their church conducts its religious services. A large part of that service is your participation in prayer by repeating over and over again certain prayers that somebody designed. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou, my way, blessed with thee, Jesus, holy man, brother God, pray for us, sinner, now at the hour of our death. And he keeps saying it over and over and over and over and over. Then every now and then you hit a different kind of a bead. That's in our Father's heart of heaven, how be the name of the come. And you do that. And you just keep repeating the same prayer. It's a ritual. Quite frankly, according to what Jesus said, it's meaningless. It has no value because you're not believing. Faith is not present here. Religious activity is involved, but not faith. 
he said, it's not the way you should pray. We use not vain repetitions. Thayer's Greek dictionary lexicon says this. It means to repeat the same things over and over. Lord, I need my rent money. God, I need my rent money. Lord, I need the rent money. Lord, I, oh God, listen. Lord, I want you to know. I, how many of you know we can't give him any information he doesn't already have? So we're kind of wasting our time trying to conjure up some real passion to, to God. He's just trying to do that. We, knowing that God knows the very hairs of your head and what you're thinking before you think it. It is not a matter of trying to impress or coerce God, nothing more than a matter of going in and Father, it's Isaiah 43, 26, put me in remembrance. You're reminding God that he already knows it, but he wants you to know that you're coming to him on his terms, asking for something he's already promised. And if you know that he hears you, then you know you have it and you can start praising God. Don't look any different, don't sound any different, but you're praising God. Why? Because I believe I have what I asked for. And I'm not going to have to keep asking for it over and over and over and over and over again. Mark eleven twenty four again, what things soever you desire. All you boys on the front row understand that. What things soever you desire. What can you desire when you're, when you're young? Well, old, either one. What can you desire? What out there has an attraction to you that's legal? What has God provided in all of his provisions you would really enjoy and like to have? Maybe it's a vacation to Alaska. Bonnie and I have been there. You say, now, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I desire to be able to go to Alaska and enjoy myself and be able to put cheese on my hamburgers. I don't want to go up there and she said, where are we going to eat tonight? And I don't want to have to go, wait a minute. I think we're supposed to fast. <laughs> no, sir, I want, I want to live an abundant life. He's promised that. See, there may be, you may be in a place, I don't know if I can believe like that or not. Well, I can. I can. After 40 plus years, you ought to be able to. So we believe God and things happen and, and God's little blessings come along the way and it just, you can't get over how amazing it is. And then you go and you have a really, really good time. Enjoy yourself. Saw what you want to saw and uh, ate some of the best fish there is and had a good time and seen beautiful country. And you come home and you think, well, you could have spent all that money. Yes, sir, I could have probably bought me some flowers to plant in the front yard. <laughs> Exotic flowers. <laughs> Unusual flowers. But I think I'll just go up there and, and go see Alaska. Couldn't that money have been spent on something else? You sound like Judas. That's what he said. No, sir, just what I believe. I believe that God gives us richly all things to enjoy, but never allows us to become covetous and greedy. What he wants you to give it, you give it. Not because, well, I'm just going to prove I can give you. Give it as unto the Lord as God directs. You got to show him your heart. But remember Mark eleven twenty four. 24, what things ever you desire when you pray, 
you boys are supposed to believe when you pray that you've got it. And on the basis of you believing like that, God says you will get it. What things ever you desire. You desire to be healed, healthy, and whole, do you? Right? Do you desire to be sick and down in the dumps and moping around? What you, which one do y'all want? Well, he'll give you the desire of your heart. The devil's going to run his mouth throughout all these aisles and continually tells whoever will listen that you're not worthy of any of this. It has nothing to do with being worthy about it. If I wasn't worthy to receive it, God wouldn't have ever said it. Now, he didn't save me because I'm worth saving. I'll guarantee you that. I was like you, hopeless in this world without God. All we like sheep had gone astray. There wasn't a righteous one amongst us. And why he lifted me out of the miry clay and saved me, I do not know, but it was not because I deserved it. But once he put me in his courtyard and I become his child, he opens up to me his book, his way, his word, his faith. It's a gift. He gave it. And he said, this is the way walk ye in it. Nobody else can do this but Christians. James chapter 1. If you believe that something has been given to you, the Bible said then you should act like it's true. We know that. But here's the deal. Here's the great, great warning. Turn to James chapter 1. Here's the great warning. This is probably faith's most sober statement. I mean, you have to deal with this one. But if any man lack wisdom, he said, let him ask of God who giveth liberally unto all men and he doesn't upbraid you for it. But if you're going to ask God for something, let him ask how? In faith. That is, you must believe you have something before you see it. Because if you say, well, I'll believe it when I see it, that's nonsense. You don't have faith for what you see. You have faith for what you don't see. Shall I use the pop machine again for a moment? You put, I guess it's a dollar now or five quarters. I don't know how many, much money you put in that machine. You put your money in before you ever see the pop. You see a picture of it. You see an image, but you don't get the real deal until you first do something. And you got to push the right buttons and you got to wait. And sometimes waiting is a little difficult. That's why they have dents in them where they've been kicked. But James says, if a man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally to Hamilton. What is your... Say, that's not right. Say, all men. How many of you are in James chapter 1? Is there anywhere in James chapter 1 where it says gives liberally to all men? What verse is it? Praise God. We're on the same page. Gives liberally to all men and upbraideth not, but let him ask in faith without wavering. Wavereth or wavering is the same as our word doubt. Same word. But let him ask in faith without wavering. What if you waver? What if you're not sure? What if you doubt? Doubt is a mental word. Doubt is a, a word that has to do with the mind. It has to do with, it's a word diacrino. Di meaning to, crino meaning to judge. 
Make a decision. Make a choice. See what's there. You see this, you see that, you see this, and you see that. Make a choice. And when you don't know which choice to make, when you're not sure, I, I, know, God's, I know God said it, but man, I know what's going on in my body and what my checkbook said. But I, I, I don't tell me you've never been here. You want to just want to say, God said that. Praise God, I'm done. And yet there's this fearful thing that comes up. Are you in James 1? Chapter 4, look at verse 8. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and ye what? Double-minded. Now that's the word diasukos. Die again meaning two, sukos meaning the soul, the realm of the mind, the intellect, and your will. And some people just cannot make up their mind. That's why when you go back to chapter one, they're double-minded. Do you suppose a double-minded man has faith in God? You see, a double-minded man can well know what the Bible says. He may be some sort of a student of the Bible. But he cannot accept what God says as being absolutely sure for him because he looks at the ways and the people that it didn't work for and he can't just say, well, I'm just going to believe it will work for me anyway because he bases his faith and his relationship to a God on what happens to other people. He hasn't read the verse that said, let God be true and every man a liar. If there's a conflict, take God at his word. I know what it was like in my own life years ago to step out and take a step of faith when I knew nobody in our town had ever done it and everybody looked at us like, you're absolutely, they're going to have to register you as being nuts. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But you know what? I said, you know what? I know what God said. I'm going to do it. And then we brought it to pass. Everybody said, tell us how all this worked. Because now they want to hear. They have a readiness of mind thing. They want to listen now because they saw it work. But you don't do it because you saw it work. You do it because God says it. Seeing it works only inspired you to listen. That's what gifts did. Gifts drew people to God. So they would listen. All through the last century, from the outpouring of the Spirit in 1905 in this country, probably down to the 60s. Great, great times of revival, thousands, miracles, wheelchairs, canes, crutches. People were just loose and they didn't do any teaching. The spirit came and they were just powerful demonstrations of healing. And God got a lot of people's attention. In the 60s, this teaching ministry started. People realized they'd never been taught. They didn't know much about the Bible. They knew about power and whoo, but they couldn't put two verses together and believe anything. So God began to raise up teachers in the 60s, raising them up to instruct God's people. Found out a whole bunch of them wasn't interested in teaching. I didn't go to church. Somebody teach me like I did in school, and they didn't want that. A few did. A few did. They laid down all their denominational barriers and say, well, I'm a Baptist or I'm a Christian church or I'm a Catholic. They laid all that down. They said, look, I just want to know personally what what God said and God began to teach those who were interested and the more they listened and the more they had that readiness of mind that Paul spoke of in Acts the more they began to see things they had never seen before their lives began to change they began to walk 
in newness of life. The message of faith became a real challenge. But they saw the results and they embraced it. But you don't just wander around looking for some thrill and expect to grow. You don't grow like that. He that knoweth groweth. Isn't that true? You don't believe it because I said it. But you grow. But God said, let him ask in faith without doubting. Are you still in James 1? Let him ask in faith without doubting. For he that doubteth is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man think that he shall receive what? Anything from God. Why? Because he's double-minded. He's a mind for God. He knows the scripture, knows the Bible well. Teaches in a seminary. Written books, degrees. But he can't trust God. And therefore, he cannot teach you to trust God. He can give you in his intellectual ability substitutes or reasons why you don't have to trust God. And most people will believe it because some heady, educated man said so. I'd rather be dumb and ignorant and just say, I'm not going to believe unless I see it in the Bible. They say, you poor Bible thumpers. Well, I ain't poor, and I don't beat on my Bible, but I am a believer. If I had to walk the rest of my life alone and by myself, I'm willing to. I made that decision years ago, though none go with me. I'm not going to change for anybody, not for you all or anybody else or for her or anybody, because the only one that's going to judge me in the end is God. And I want him to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I don't want to be well done. I want him to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, another one, another reasons why that kills your faith, this is pretty obvious, is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is defined in my dictionary sources as one who feigns to be what he is not, one who has the form of godliness without the power, boy, that takes in a bunch, or who assumes an appearance of deity and virtue when he is destitute of true religion. He's a play actor. Really, a hypocrite knows what people want. And he acts like what they want because that makes them happy. And the preacher sees, if I can make these people happy, they'll, they'll take care of me. I'll get a promotion to go to a bigger church. I'll get the big, uh, the big package the next church, the big parsonage, the big plans, the big retirements, IRAs and Lucy Mays. I'll get all of that. All I got to do is just make everybody happy. The man is a hypocrite. Let me tell you what John Gill, now John Gill was an old Calvinist commentator, highly thought of in his circles. This is what he said about hypocrisy and hypocrites. He said, in religion is one who seems to be what he is not, a holy and righteous man. He professes to have what he has not, the grace of God. He pretends to do what he does not, worship God sincerely and fervently, and does all that he does to be seen of men. He's a hypocrite. What he does is to please people to gain either the control of people or the admiration and support of people. 
He's an actor. She's an actor. We all know of or have known hypocrites, and probably at some point in our life we have been hypocritical, portraying ourselves to somebody whose favor we want, acting in a way that pleases them, saying what they like to hear. That's part of what hypocrisy is. And, and when you do that, listen to what the book of Job says. In the book of Job, God said, the hypocrite's hope shall perish. He has no hope. Now, hope meaning expectation. He, he figures that, look, I'm preaching the word. I'm, I'm reading. I'm giving a good sermon to these people. I visit these people. I go talk to them, and I put my arm around them and love on them, and, and I tell them what they like to hear and boost up their whatevers. Surely I'm all right. Surely this is, this is going to gain me something with the Lord. But it doesn't. Remember Matthew 23, eight times Jesus called the Pharisees a hypocrite? He said, you hypocrites. You go about the whole world. You compass land and sea to make a proselyte. Boy, you lay down your theology before him and plead with him on why he should believe what you tell him. And Jesus said, when you get through with him, he is twice as much the child of hell as you are. That's not much of a compliment, is it? All that religious activity you had in your life has only produced somebody that will never follow God on God's terms. You'll make excuses. Well, I know God said that, but, well, after all, I mean, nobody's perfect. Come on. They'll excuse themselves. Hypocrisy is a faith killer. And those to, who are, God will show no mercy. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 6 and verse 5, he said, And when you pray, be not, you shall not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and in the hospital rooms, I'm sorry, in synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Jesus said again to those hypocrites, he said, you know, outwardly you appear righteous. You like the great warning that Paul gave to Timothy. He said, you know, they are wolves. They are truly wolves that look like sheep. They sound like sheep. They preach like sheep. They act like sheep. They look like you. They're around you. But inwardly they are ravening wolves. At some point, God will expose them. And most of the time, they are able to gain access to your admiration through hypocrisy. Playing like they agree with you, playing like they like you, playing like all this or that. I'm just going to say it the way I need to say it. There's been a lot of times in my ministry, this ministry the Lord gave me, that people have made it obvious work of complimenting me. Oh, Brother Hamilton. Oh. Oh, Brother Hamilton. And whenever they start that stuff, I think, get away from me. Because a lot of times people act like that so they can get into your space. They start working that witchcraft spirit. That's the control spirit. They start making suggestions and things they want you to do. That they, you know, I don't mind a compliment. I don't endorse them. I don't look for them. I don't wait around for them. But when you live to get rewarded with applause, that chances are 
If you're preaching the Bible, you won't get many. But if you're preaching so that people just think you're a wonderful person, chances are you're not preaching the word of God. That which is highly esteemed amongst men is an abomination to God. And so you have to, all of us have to be careful to be yourself. Now you be nice and be kind. Don't be, well, I'll tell you one thing. God doesn't endorse being rude either. We can all be kind and all be gentle. Even when we disagree with each other, we can do that in a Christian way. And I know that the truth be known, we probably disagree on something. But when you're going around, like look at verse 16, when you're going around thinking, look how, look how spiritual I am. When you fast, be not as a hypocrite, for of a sad countenance they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. You got the picture there? What's wrong with you? I'm fasting. Oh, I'm really in the chambers and the throne room of God. But don't talk to me now because I'm in a fast. You got your reward. You know what Jesus said to do? Wash your face, comb your hair. That's not a very popular day either. But wash your face and comb your hair and appear to be just ordinary. So nobody can, wow. You've been fasting how many? 65 days? Well, you're about ready for the box then if you've been on a 65-day fast. But in the last days, Isaiah 32, if you'll go back again in the middle of your Bible, to Isaiah 32, here's what God says, and I believe this could very much apply to the liberal deceit that is in the typical church today. If it's here, then let it be so. If, let it be what it is. If it's somewhere else, let it be. Let the word of God be true. But here's what I think end time liberal deceit does to congregations. When you start trumping up your church, your numbers, your this is and your that's, and people are going there and just following a system. Here's something God said. Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 6. For the vile person will speak villainy. Now the word villainy means foolishness. That's foolish. For the vile person will speak villainy and his heart will work iniquity, notice, to practice hypocrisy. That's what he's doing. Look how many people I've got in my church. Look how big. Look how well I'm doing. Look how many. Look how and look how and look how. He will, he will speak foolishness. And his heart will work self-gain, self-serving, to practice hypocrisy, and notice, and to utter error against the Lord. And worst of all, to make empty the soul of the hungry. I've had this discussion a number of times. I've been rebuked for it once, but I'm going to set myself up for rebuke number two. I don't know how many people I have talked to, have gone to seminary hungry and were made empty while they were there. Just fire went out. Somebody said that's not necessarily true. Well, those gifts are not for today. And so they're espousing some form of godliness. It has no power. And if it has no power, then all you can do is just sit around and ride through this life with looking forward to nothing. Your life has no real purpose spiritually. 
Nothing to it. We're all going to the same place. Everybody's in the same boat. Until you start reading. But this is what speaking villainy does. Speaking foolish. That's foolish to say that. And you'd make empty. You see that? I painted yellow in my Bible to make empty the soul of the hungry. And he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. I'm no longer at the water brooks thirsting for God. I have found out there's nothing to this. There's not much to look forward to in this Christian life. No wonder our kids today leave church by the time they're 15. There's nothing to this. They watch mom and dad at home. There's nothing to what they got at church. They don't, it doesn't, I can't tell anything. They don't see anything here. What they're taught is no different than what they hear at school in the world. I mean, everything is after all or come on or, well, you know, nobody's perfect. So that's a license to just, why bother? If God won't do what he said, if you tell me that while God said some things in here, we know that he could, we know that he has, but there's no certainty that he will, then why even bother trying? You just leave it all up to God. If God wants to do it, he will. Well, if that's true, we don't need faith. What, what good is faith if God just does whatever he wants, regardless of what you do? But I'll tell you this, folks. When you get past all that liberal junk and hobnobbery, you'll find that the devil's in the details. He is the one who is trying to lure away people from the faith to put to sleep that so-called watchman on the tower making him, as Isaiah said, like a dumb dog that can't bark. Why bark? I mean, you know, they're all good people. They're going to heaven anyway. So, you know, come on, back. You know, why do we talk about sin so much? I mean, that's not anything that's inspiring. And they're speaking foolishly. It's what God calls that kind of stuff. They're dead in their sins. They're dead in their trespasses. God said, I save them through a word. What word you're giving them will never get them saved. He saves them with the word. And so when you don't have that, you've been duped, I would say, by a spirit of hypocrisy, the work of an agent of Satan that finds his lodging place in a mouthpiece to lull to sleep, to make indifferent, and to gain the approval and the admiration of people while he's putting you to sleep, you're applauding him. Good old brother this or that. Because what happens if you preach the word? In a lot of places, if you just declare the whole truth. Oh my, you're just, you know, you're one of them, I suppose. But there's a warning here. As I said earlier, the, the hypocrite's hope is going to perish. And, and Job said, what is the hope of the hypocrite? Though... He hath gained when God takes away his soul. What good, what, what good was your life and all your pursuits? You lost it all. Ananias and Sapphira, were they hypocritical? Acts 5, remember? Ananias and Sapphira. I know you can't spell Sapphira, but you remember Ananias anyway. And they said, look what we've done. Look how much we gave. Did you give all of that? I mean, is this what you got for everything? You kept nothing for yourself? Oh, no, this is everything. And come to find out, they did hold some back, but they were lying to gain admiration. They died. 
Not many durst join himself to that group after that. Would you join if God was going to hammer you on your headpiece every time you lied or did something? That'd keep you straight, wouldn't it? It'd make you live right, talk right, and tell the truth. One last thing, and this is it. I'm closing right now. One more point. And it would take a month, two meetings a week, at least a month to deal with this. And I'm just going to read it to you. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 as a reason that faith dies and is killed. Probably the, I'm saying this about every point, but probably the biggest reason. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, and it has to do with marriage. Marriage relationships. I did not write this, but I sure have learned to read it and sometimes with trembling. Because I, like most men in this church, have not been the ideal husband. Maybe a couple of you were pretty close. But uh, not all of us were. But God started to work and he's still doing it. He's bringing it about. But notice verse 7. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them. That would be your wife if you're married. This is for the married folks. You folks on the front row can close your Bible. But likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge giving honor unto the wife as the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life so that what? So that your prayers be not hindered. Well, can your prayers be hindered if a man isn't treating his wife the way he should? Can the prayers be hindered if, she does, if she's unwilling to submit to her husband as unto the Lord? Come on, girls. It's true. How many times has the faith for something God has promised, has our faith for something languished and not come to pass because of a problem at home, either with daddy or with mama? Or bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment, mistreatment. There's not a lot of people that enter into a marriage covenant with the idea that I am going to keep my vows as unto the Lord. I will demonstrate that to my husband. And he doesn't deserve half of what he's going to get. But I'm going to love him as I promised to because that's what God hoped to as unto the Lord. And he gets love when he's been rude and he gets treated kindly and better than he deserves even when he is anything but nice. And it goes the other way too, girls. There are men who take vows. I'm going to love my wife whether she is willing to cooperate on biblical terms or not. If she doesn't want to submit and let me be the head of the house, which I couldn't be if she won't let me, I'm going to act like I'm the head of the house. Lord, I give her to you in Jesus' name. You fix her. That's why I say all you young people, do not marry. All you young folks say this, I will not marry. All right, all you on the front row say, I will never marry. Well, I know what's on their mind. Not necessarily, it's just the way we're made, isn't it? Let me tell you something. Just remember this, because there's so much teaching here about relationships between husbands and wives and roles and duties and responsibilities and, and how God factors in. But... Before you ever marry a man or a woman, a man and a woman, 
not amen and amen. Not Adam and Steve, boys, it's Adam and Eve. Remember that. Before you marry, you better make real sure that who you're about to marry is somebody you're willing to, to honor and submit to and love without reservation for the rest of your life. Well, what if he doesn't treat me right? You made a vow to God. You do your side. You keep your end of the bargain. What if he leaves me? You still keep your end. What if he leaves me, drops me, and goes and runs off with somebody else? I still have a vow and a commitment I made to that person when I married them. And I'm going to keep my end of the deal. I'm going to keep my end of the deal. Because one day when it's over, i got to stand before God. Amen. But folks, there are things that can keep your faith from, from operating. The things that can be disappointing to you. And it's not God's fault. It's our fault. We just take for granted. If we learn principles of faith, it'll work. And we set aside that we got a life to live that can determine whether or not that faith will be activated. I mean, we could shut it down with unforgiveness and sin and so forth. So it's, it's your choice. You heard it. You had a chance. Now you deal with it. Amen. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, as you look upon the hearts of all of us that are here tonight, and you know our hearts as nobody else knows, there is nothing that is hidden from you in our lives. There's no idea that we have, no direction we're thinking of, that you don't already know it. I ask you in the name of Jesus to lean on us, to turn our hearts squarely over to Jesus, to hide nothing from you, to be open and honest and have what you call the integrity of our hearts. That we might exercise our faith with the assurance as Abraham did, being fully persuaded that what God has promised, he'll do it and live like that's true. Father, we are only people. We are limited. We can only go as far as you show us and know as much as you reveal to us. I ask you in the name of Jesus to make us understand this message and be willing to live this way. I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.